L. Crane Brom wrote a classic children's series that you probably have heard at least one of the books in the series. The series is about a magical world that is called Oz. Now, you probably have heard of at least one of the books, The Wizard of Oz, because of the classic movie that they came out about it, but it's actually a children's series with a whole bunch of different books. In The Wizard of Oz, there's a guy, if you haven't seen the movie, huh? uh, maybe some of our younger people haven't seen it, uh, there's a man made completely out of tin, uh, completely out of tin, and Dorothy and the Scarecrow find him in the woods. He's rested in place. He can't move. And he gets their attention, and they grab the oil can that's next to him, and they loosen up his joints. He's able to move again, and the tin man joins Dorothy and the Scarecrow in their quest to go see the Wizard of Oz. Now, uh, a little bit in the movie, but even more so in the book, it actually gives a little more backstory of the Tin Man and how he came to be stuck right there in the woods. The Tin Man was a human. He was a normal lumberjack. And he had fallen in love with this girl in town, but the mother didn't like him. And so the mother made it so that whenever he swung his axe, it would cut him. It would cut a limb off. So every time he swung his axe and the limb got cut off, he went to a tinsmith, and the tinsmith replaced that limb with a prosthetic tin version of it until he was completely made out of tin. His problem came when his axe slipped and it cut his heart in two. And his heart was the only thing that the tinsmith couldn't replace with something made out of tin. And so you had this man who was very kind and very loving that he got his heart cut into, and he switched, his personality changed to where he was not loving anymore, and he was not gracious anymore, and he actually became prideful because he thought, since now he's made out of tin, whenever the axe slipped and hit him, it didn't do anything. So he became prideful and arrogant about how invincible he was. However, he went into the woods, and he thought he didn't need his oil can, and a lightning storm came. And when the rain began to fall, his joints began to rust up, and he quit going forward, and he got stuck in place. And because he was unloving and nobody liked him at that point, nobody even thought to come looking for him until Dorothy and Scarecrow just happened to pass along their way. We're in uh, this series. We're talking about why do God create Greensport Baptist Church. And we saw last week in Matthew 28, 16-20, that God has created us with a purpose, and that purpose is to make Christ-like disciples. <laughs> that purpose is to make Christ-like disciples. And we learned in Matthew 28, 16-20 that Jesus told us the plan on how to make Christ-like disciples. And the first of that step in that plan was that we are supposed to go and share the gospel. We're supposed to do outreach. That's step one in how we make disciples. So now we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, and we're going to ask the question, what does outreach look like? What does it look like to go and spread the gospel? How do we do step one in that process? Because here's the thing. I think we would agree that, I'm pretty sure everybody here would agree, we should be doing outreach. We should be sharing the gospel. I mean, I don't know if I know anybody would be like, no, we shouldn't be sharing the gospel as a church or as Christians. We all, I think we can safely say we all agree that's what we should be doing. The problem is we struggle to do it. If we're just honest with ourselves, we struggle to do it. And this is why I think that is. I think we get to where we ask the wrong questions. We get focused on the wrong things of importance. And if we're not 
careful if we get too long asking the wrong questions, too long focused on the wrong things, we can quit going and we can become rusted like that tin man. And we can find ourselves as individuals and as a church rusted to our spot and not going anywhere. And so how do we do that? How do we keep ourselves from becoming like that tin man where we're just rusted to where we are? We have to ask the right questions, and that's what we find out in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. So let me give you a little backstory about what's happening. It talks about verses 1 through 5. The book of Acts is actually the, like a volume 2 to the gospel of Luke. Luke wrote both books. And so, and so the book of Acts is volume 2 to the gospel of Luke. Satan really, really, really has something he wants y'all to hear today. This is a little extra. How do I know that? Because every time I've tried to do a sermon in the past, and I've had nothing but distraction the entire time I'm talking, there's usually that means there's something in that sermon that there's somebody here who needs to hear really bad. And Satan's doing his darnest thing he can to make sure you don't hear that. So I'm going to stand up here and I'm just going to keep preaching. <laughs> and hope that y'all hope that And we can just keep going around and hope that just whatever he throws at us with all this distraction and audio, I'm just going to keep preaching. And if we don't need the microphone, we don't need the microphone because I can talk loud enough. So, the book of Acts is actually the second volume of a two-part series, the Gospel of Luke and then the book of Acts. And it says in the first few verses, he says, Luke tells the guy, hey, the book of Acts is a continuation of my previous book, which is what Jesus began to do. And that's interesting he said that. In other words, he said the book of Luke is not the story of what Jesus did. It's the story of what Jesus began to do. In other words, when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, Jesus was just getting saved. And the Acts is what Jesus is still doing. But he's doing it now through his church and through the Holy Spirit. And so, to keep you up in the story, Jesus has died on the cross for our sins, and he's been buried, and he's risen from the grave. And over the course of 40 days after that, he appears to his, God, his disciples in little spurts. Sometimes he's with them, sometimes he's not. And he's teaching them during those times. Luke tells us that he's teaching them specifically two things. One, that the Holy Spirit, they need the Holy Spirit's power. And secondly, he's teaching them about the kingdom of God. And so that's where we are. Jesus is raised from the dead. It's this 40-day period before he descends into heaven. And in verses 1 through 5, it's like a general overview, a summary of what's going on. Verse 6, we zoom in on one moment, one time, that the disciples ask him something. And he responds to it. And we see in verses 6 through 7 that they ask Jesus the wrong question. And because of that, they're starting getting fixed and stuck in where they were, verse 6. So when they had come together, they were asking Jesus, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times of the epic that the Father has fixed by his authority. So picture this where the disciples are right now. They have been with Jesus for a while now. He's been coming and going. He's been teaching them about the Holy Spirit. He's been teaching them about the kingdom of God. And they probably think, hey, this is going to be the normal from now on. I don't know if they actually knew he was going to 
sinned or not. They probably thought this was going to be the normal process thing from then on out. And you have to know what they thought about, about the kingdom of God. Because this is what they grew up as kids learning in such Sabbath school. That the Christ was going to be raised from the dead. And when he, well, they didn't teach you to raise the dead. Christ was going to come. When the Christ came, he was going to defeat all the political enemies of Israel. And he was going to restore the political nation of Israel to the place it was. So all their enemies that had scorned them and had beat them up and persecuted them, all these things that were so terrible to them, but Christ was going to come and wipe out all those physical enemies and literally restore means to bring back the good old days. The Christ was going to come and he was going to bring back the good old days to Israel, the nation of Israel. And so the disciples are probably going, all right, well, Jesus didn't do that before his crucifixion. You know, this is the time he's going to be now. You know, is this where he's going to do this stuff where he makes us happy and healthy and safe and everything that we thought he was going to do? And so they begin to ask him a question. And in the tense there, in the Greek, is the idea they're asking him a lot, almost bugging him about it. You know, when, Jesus, are you going to do something? You know, Jesus, we, we followed you a long time. We've been saved. We saw you get crucified. Is now the time that you're going to do something? When are you going to restore our families? When are you going to restore our country? When are you going to restore the temple? When are you going to come and bring us happy, safe, healthy lives? Is now the time you're going to do that, God? When are you going to do something? When, 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 when? And if we're not careful, that's the question we can find ourselves asking God to. It's just when. You know, God, when are you going to come restore my life? When are you going to come restore my family? When are you going to come restore our nation? When are you going to come restore our church? When, God, are you going to do something? When, when, when? And the problem with the question is really not that it's bad. You can't ask God when he's going to do something. The problem is with the priorities. It's not the question, it's the priorities. Because here's what Jesus wanted them to see in verse 7. He says, it's not our job to know when God is going to do something. It's our job to do something until then. He says, it's not our job to know when God's going to restore anything. It's our job to know what God has for you to do until then. Amen. He says, he, he talks about how God is in control of history. History is not a random series of acts of cause and effect. But God is in control of the flow of history so that the overall flow of history is aimed directly at what he purposed. And he's set up certain times and epics for things, including what we're in now, which is the time of the church. But he tells them, he gets them straight. He says, you're asking the wrong questions. You shouldn't be asking, when God are you going to do something? You should be asking, what am I supposed to do? And that's the question he has for us. And so what are we supposed to do? In verse 8, thankfully, we don't have to guess. He tells us how, what are we supposed to do? Step one, I'm making disciples. How do we do outreach? That is to spread the gospel, power of the Holy Spirit, to all people. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Jesus says it's not our jobs to ask and know when God's going to do anything. What he says is God has given us something to do. 
And the question is not, it's not a bad question. Like I said, you were going to ask God when, but it's a matter of priorities. The priority is not knowing when. The priority is knowing what. What does God have you as an individual to do? What does God have us as a church to do? That's the question we should be asking God. And he said, we are to spread the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit to all people. And so we're supposed to do two things. First, receive power by the Holy Spirit. That's what he said in verse, uh, verse 8, beginning. He said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You see, the disciples, um, in Acts 2, it talks about a moment when the Holy Spirit came to earth. You see, the, the Holy Spirit hadn't come upon the disciples yet in Acts chapter 1. If you keep reading in Acts, in Acts chapter 2, God sends the Holy Spirit upon them. And when he sends the Holy Spirit upon them, all these magical things happen. They they begin speaking in tongues, and they become empowered by the Holy Spirit. And Peter stands up and he says a sermon, and 3,000 people get saved. Like, every pastor's dream to tell a sermon and have 3,000 people get saved. That all happens in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes. But until then, Jesus tells them to wait. And I always find that to be weird. Like, why would Jesus tell them, go spread the gospel, but don't do that yet? Why would he say, go spread the gospel, but wait? you got to wait. Because it seems like it's pretty important. They wouldn't want to wait. That's because Jesus knows that you can't change anybody's heart. The only person that can change somebody's heart is the Holy Spirit. And so until the Holy Spirit comes, if you try to do anything on your own, you can fail. But here's the thing about us. <clears throat> Acts chapter 2 is in the past for us. Acts chapter 2 has already happened. And the Bible says that if you place your faith in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit dwells in you, what does that mean? That means every Christian has the power to see somebody get saved. With the Holy Spirit inside of you, every Christian has the ability to share the gospel and see somebody get saved. Because it has nothing to do with your ability to share the gospel. It has everything to do with the person of the Holy Spirit living inside. Actually, she enjoys uh, reading. Not reading. She doesn't, well, she doesn't enjoy reading. But she enjoys burning uh, candles a lot. Uh, just to make the room in the house smell sweet. And she's really gotten into burning wax melts. Now, if you don't know what a wax melt is, it's these little bitty hard cubes of wax. That you put in a lamp, and it has a it looks like a saucer on top of the lamp, and the heat from that lamp comes up and it makes the wax smell good. Here's the thing about these little hard wax melts. I should have brought one if I thought about it. Uh, if I held it in my hand, it wouldn't melt. It wouldn't produce really that much scent. I could breathe on it, and it wouldn't really produce that much scent. It wouldn't melt. I could stick it in my pocket and walk around with me. And it still really wouldn't melt or produce any smell. The only way you're going to get that hard piece of wax to melt and produce smell is if you put it and expose it to the heat of the lamp. That's how the Holy Spirit works. The whole, when you expose somebody's heart to the heat of the Holy Spirit, even the hardest part melts. And the more you, you share the gospel with somebody, the more you talk to them, the more the Holy Spirit's heat of the Holy Spirit, the heat of his life, burns on somebody's heart, the more that heart melts. The Holy Spirit has the power to move mountains and melt even the hardest heart. 
So Jesus said it's not our job to know when he's going to do something. It's our job to know what to do. We're to spread the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. Which means, guys, if you are listening to me today and you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can share the gospel with somebody and see them get saved. You don't have to have an MDiv. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to have a PhD. You don't have to go through some kind of evangelism training. All you have to do is share the gospel and trust the Holy Spirit's power to change them because he's the only one that can change people's hearts. And so he said, first, what do you want? You should ask what you should be doing. You should be sharing the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, you should be spreading the gospel to all people. In the second half of verse 8, he says here, And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. So he tells the disciples, you will be my witnesses. A witness is somebody, usually in a legal case, that would just explain what they saw or explain what they know in front of people. And so the disciples were, one of their primary roles back then was to be a witness of Jesus. They were to witness about the things they saw Jesus do. They were to witness about the resurrection, about his crucifixion. They were just supposed to tell people what they saw and what they knew, that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. They had believed, put their faith in him and were saved. And Jesus said he wants more people to do that too. If you've ever seen, been a part or really seen a bad car wreck, you probably have had to serve as a witness to the police. When we were in McKinney, Texas one time, we were driving down this six-lane road. It was in the city. And the traffic was that it was really pretty bad, which is typical of McKinney, Texas, which is inside the DFW Metroplex. Okay, so it's pretty, it's like driving through Burton Hill, Birmingham. And we go over this hill, I'm in the middle lane, and as I talk this hill, there's a car stall in the right lane. And the traffic's bad, so it stopped. And I see that and I go, that's not very good for that car to be sitting right over that hill. And sure enough, another car comes over the hill and has to slam on their brakes because as soon as they top that hill in that lane, there's a car sitting there. And I'm, and I'm sitting there going, this is not set up to be a very good situation. And then sure enough, a pickup truck comes flying 50 miles an hour probably over that hill, slams into the back of the one car, which slams into the back of the stall car, and they both go sliding about 40 yards down the street. So Ash and I, we pull over and we jump out, we rush to go see if the, there was nobody in the stall car, but we would look to go see how the lady was inside the other car that got hit. And she was fine, just a little bit bruised and beat up. And we stayed for the cops to see if they wanted us to be a witness of what happened. What would the cops want us to do? The cops would just want us to tell them what we saw and what we knew about the situation. We are called to be a witness. We are called to be a witness to Christ. That doesn't mean you have to have all these big theological arguments in your head. All you need to do to be a witness is to tell people what you know and what's happened to you. You witness by telling people you know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, was buried and rose from the grave, and tell them what you know God has done for you. How he saved you. How he's changed you. That's all you need to do to be a witness. And so he tells them to be a witness specifically in these three areas. 
in verse in verse up in verse eight. Um, he tells them to witness, or as the Greek word is, is martyria, which is where we get the word martyr for, from, in these three areas. And thankfully, with these three areas, he doesn't leave us just to like randomly scatter about to do stuff, but he actually tells us where we're supposed to be witnessing to. And a lot of people think that chapter, verse 8 is actually like the table of contents for the book of Acts that shows how the early church went about doing outreach. And then also, therefore, showing us how we should do outreach. And the first part we should be going to is it says, you should be my witnesses in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was where they lived. It was where they had families. It was where they worked. It was where they hung out. So Jerusalem was their inner, their inner um, circle. So our first task to do outreach is to reach out to our inner circles. Who do we have? Who do you have as a family? Who do you have as a neighbor? Who do you have that's a friend or teammate that you need to witness to about Jesus? He says, start with your Jerusalem. God has put Greensboro Baptist Church at 9305 Shoulder Creek Road for a reason. This is our Jerusalem. You live in the house you live in for a reason. That's your Jerusalem. You go to the work. You go to the school you go to for a reason. That's your Jerusalem. And he said, first, be my witness in your Jerusalem. Be your witness in your inner circle. That's how you start with outreach. And that's how we should do. We should start as individuals, every individual committing to knowing who you have in your mind that you know isn't saved and committing to say, I'm going to work to witness to that person. And then us as a church committing to do that too. But then we don't start though at our Jerusalem. We don't stop here. We do more. We says, and then to all Judea and Samaria in verse 8. Judea was their political nation and so that would be like our United States. And then Samaria was, I think he really purposely pulled this in. Because technically Samaria is part of Judea. It's not a separate place. So why mention Samaria specifically? Was because the Jews did not like the Samaritans. They were racist against them, basically. They didn't want to hang out with the Samaritans. They had different cultures from the Samaritans. They didn't want to be friends with the Samaritans. They didn't want the Samaritans coming into their synagogues. They were racist against the Samaritans. And I think he, Jesus is picking up on something that the disciples say in verse 6 when they say, when you restore the kingdom to Israel. He said, he's getting focused on a bigger scheme. He says, your job is not just to focus on your Jerusalem. Your job is to focus on spreading the gospel to your political nation. And that includes the people who don't look and act like you. That includes everybody. That includes the Samaritans too. And so we as a church, this is where I, I'm thankful. I'm thankful we have stuff like the St. Clair Association that, that we give money to that helps us to spread out. And we have that Alabama Bank Association, the SBC with, the, with NAM, the North American Mission Board, that we give money to to help us spread the gospel to our nation. But do you realize there are places in the United States where 3% are saved. Three, one, three out of every hundred people in some areas of the United States are born again believers. Do you realize that? In our own nation. And the problem we need to realize is we can't be comfortable sitting in our little valley where there's Americans who would die today and burn.
And, it's, and like I said, I'm glad we have these associations we give money to, but this command is not to denominations. This command is not to the Southern Baptist Convention. It's to churches. It's our job to spread the gospel also to our Judea and Samaria. We have the responsibility to spread the gospel to our nation, no matter what race, what wealth, or what their current lifestyle choice they've made. And then thirty says, after you reached out to your inner circle locally, and after you reached out to your political circle nationally, you're supposed to reach out to the world, even to the remotest parts of the earth, and they're safe. Which is the idea of the farthest place you can go. And, I, and again, I'm, I can't believe we can be a part of a group like the Southern Baptist Convention. Because if you don't realize what it means to be Southern Baptist, we do something that no other denomination does. We get together with all the other Southern Baptist churches, and every church pays money toward the SBC so that we can send missionaries out to other countries. So every a little percentage of whatever time you give to this church actually automatically goes toward missionaries. And then in December, we'll have the Lottie Moon offering, which is really how even more so they pay for those missionaries overseas. And we have stuff like that at the Baptist Convention, too. And I am so grateful that we can be Southern Baptists so we can say our denomination does world missions right. But here's the thing, like I said before, this command is not for the Southern Baptist Convention. It's for local churches. And sending money to send out missionaries is not the same as going yourself. Now, I know that doesn't mean that, you know, everybody in here, we need to pack up our bags and go change our street locations, other places in the country or other places in the world. And it doesn't even mean that everybody in here is physically able to go do something like that. It's not saying every individual member has to go be a missionary. It's saying that every church has a responsibility to work to see lost people saved throughout the world. And so we have here what Jesus said. The disciples, they were getting rusted. They were going to fix in place. The disciples weren't going forward because they were asking the wrong question. They were asking God, when are you going to show up and do something? When Jesus said, you should be asking, what do you have me to do? What do you have me as an individual to do in Asheville, Alabama in 2020? What do you have us as Greensport Baptist Church to do? And he tells them to spread the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit to all people. And we are, I'm thankful because we've actually already began to get steps toward that direction in this church, if you didn't know that already. And this summer, we started this group called the Outreach Team. That diagram out there kind of shows what we're talking about, where there's three steps to making a Christ-like disciple. You have the outreach or going, you have engage, which means to baptize, we have teaching. And we're talking today about that first step. In early September, we started an outreach team. Here's the thing about the outreach team, guys. It's not exclusive. Anybody listening to me here or in the fellowship hall or online, you can be a part of this outreach team. In fact, you know, there was some concern when we weren't going to make it exclusive, like what happened if we had too many people? What if the whole church showed up? Wouldn't it be awesome if the whole church showed up to an outreach? <laughs> what if our whole church showed up to an outreach team meeting? I don't care if the whole church shows up to an outreach team. Maybe that's what we should be doing. But we had this outreach team, and you know, some people were nervous at the first part because they're like, "Well, I'm not, 
you know, I'm not physically, mostly it was like, I was not physically capable, or, you know, especially COVID, you know, I'm not able to go knock on doors. But outreach is, as we saw, is so much more than just knocking on doors to random people. And you know, that's part of it. And I've been thankful to see, as we've introduced that today, just how much that's already began to explode. And it's, and it's just already spreading, and I've loved it. Because we got people in our church already who have collected names of unchurched people and have committed to go to them and talk to them about getting saved and come to the church. We already have people that have committed to do that. We already have people who have local benevolence or care ministries who have committed to, like, the children's home that we have this, this, uh, this church down here for that are already working to do that. We already have people that are working toward marketing, which is simply telling our community, this is where we are, we're here for you. And it's been great to just see how much that's already exploded locally. But we can do more than just local stuff. We should do more than just local stuff. We're commanded to do more than just local stuff. And we're commanded to go with mission trips, both to nationally and nationally. That might mean that the Lord is calling you in your heart to be a missionary or a minister. Accept that call. But he doesn't call everybody to be a missionary. He doesn't call everybody to be a pastor. But here's the truth. God might be convicting your heart, and you have experience planning trips. Maybe because you've gone on a lot of vacations, worldwide or nationally. You have experience planning trips. Or you have funds that you can provide for a trip. You might not be able to physically go, but you can, you can plan something. You can provide something. Or you might be here and you say, I have no idea how to plan a trip, and I'm not able to pay for a trip. But man, I would love to go on something nationally. We need to do that too. Our church can make a difference in the nation and in the world. We just need somebody to step up and say, I'll plan it. We need somebody to step up and say, I'll fund it. And we need somebody to step up and say, I'll go. So the disciples, they've gotten rusted in place because they were focused on the question, God, when are you going to do something? And if we're not careful, we as individuals and we as a church can get rusted in place too. Because the question we should be asking is not, God, when are you going to come restore us? The question we should be asking is, God, what do you have me to do? Spread the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit, to all nations. So the next few moments we're going to pray. We'll give you a chance to respond to that. Maybe here you sit this morning and God has laid somebody in your heart or your inner circle that you know needs to get saved. Spend time during the guys stop singing to pray about that person. Ask God to give you a chance to do that. Trust the Holy Spirit. Maybe you want me to pray for you. Come down and tell me about it. Maybe you can come down to this altar to call to God for them. God might be calling you to be a missionary or a minister. Accept that call today. Tell me about it so I can help you with that. Maybe God's calling you to join a church where we are going to do outreach. As long as I'm the pastor, we're going to do outreach. And you want to join a church that is about outreach. It's one of those three main things. Come tell me about it. Talk to me about it. I'm available other than Sunday mornings. Talk to me during the week, too. Or maybe you're here today and you've heard the truth that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, was buried and rose from the grave. And that if you place your faith in Him, He will save you and you will receive your Holy Spirit's power. 
If you want to place your faith in Jesus, do that today. Come down, tell me, we'll walk back here. I'll talk to you about it. I'll embarrass you. If you're online, you can comment. Go to greensportbaptistchurch.gmail.com and tell me, or fill out that connect form. But it's, after I pray and as the music plays, you guys respond to whatever God's laid on your heart today.